no, I mean, like, I've read the book. I have some thoughts. What do you think about incest? I mean, it's, I have, I have an opinion. He's like, I'm good with incest. You know, you got to keep it in the family. Oh, God. So guys, if you thought your family was complicated, wait until you meet the Tengas from this week's graphic novel, Ayako, created by the godfather of manga, Osamu Tezuka, whose seminal work includes heavy stuff like Phoenix, Buddha, and a message to Adolf, and wonderful children's series like Astro Boy and Princess Knight. (sighs) And then, of course, there's Ayako which I am not going to be giving to my daughter anytime soon. The story begins immediately after World War II when Hiro Tenga, the middle child, returns home after a stint as a prisoner of war. Japan has been crushed by the Allies and the consequences are immensely disruptive, from the Tenga family farm being broken up and repartitioned to its tenant farmers, while Hiro himself serves as a spy for the occupying American government. What could go wrong? Indeed. Especially when you meet the rest of Hiro's family. As some people like his sister Naoko, his mother Iba, and his younger brother Shiro, they're all right. But the family is ruled with an iron fist by Hiro's father Sakuman. Gesundheit. Excuse me. This awful King Lear-like patriarch who is at once buffoonish and frightening. Meanwhile, Hiro's eldest brother Shiro is a conniving mastermind looking to take over the family farm by hook or by crook. And don't forget that there is a woman in a box. We can't forget about the title character, Ayako herself. Perversions abound. I'm Robin Segel. And I'm Ryan Joe. And at least our family dramas don't involve infighting for ancestral wealth and the shattering of all familial norms. Amen. (laughs) So this week, we decided to talk about Ayako. And with us is our old mutual buddy, Jonathan Kreiner. John, welcome to Quarantine Comics. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. So before we get into post-war Japanese dysfunctional family (laughs) epics, can you tell us a little bit about your pop culture sensibilities? Yeah, I mean, graphic novels are definitely new for me. So I've read, you know, Watchmen and this interesting Richard Feynman graphic novel, The Nuclear Physicist. And that's that's pretty much it other than kind of mainstream superhero. WandaVision was fun and entertaining. But I'd say most of my interests are focused on you know, business trends, music, technology. So definitely not in the in the graphic novel as my day to day, but interesting and fun. The genre is so steeped in superheroes. When you came into this, what was your just your immediate reaction to it? Yeah, well, I actually thought of it just like a novel. That's what it felt like a like a smart story. I was thinking about a lot of the parallels to the little Japanese history I know. So it it never felt childish or like pop culture like the superheroes do. The thing I was trying to figure out, guys, is I do always try to separate the creator from the creation. And similar to kind of what we did with Warren Ellis recently. But in this case, I've read a lot of Tezuka's stuff. Like when he did this like massive epic of the life of Buddha, which I have on my shelf and I'm staring at it. And there's some pretty fucked up shit in there. But you're like, oh, well, it's kind of a historical fiction. Fucked up shit happened. But then you read this, this epic almost like HBO-like drama, and there's incest and a lot of other things going on in it that's really fucked up. And you have to say, whoa, what's wrong with this guy? Again, even though this guy is like a Frank Miller, Alan Moore kind of character in Japanese comics and manga, is he just like a creator telling a fucked up story for the sake of it? 
And then I really started thinking about it. It's like, or is this a reflection of the kind of shit that was happening at the turn of the century? Because by the time you get to the end of the book, you have gang wars and Yakuza and stuff like that. But is the other stuff, the tenant farming, the kind of the father figure, I have to wonder, is this a commentary on what post-war Japan was like? Or is it just a fucked up story set in post-war Japan? Before I, I picked up a Yako, I, I mean, I was just reading up about it, and they said this is uh, Osamu Tezuka's uh, most political work, which I, I can definitely see that. But I don't think of it as a polemic in that I don't think he necessarily had an agenda other than to tell an interesting story within the backdrop of post-war Japan. You know, I mean, fundamentally, it's, it's, it's a very conservative family. The Tengas have owned this land, farmed on this land for, oh, I don't know, centuries maybe? I mean, this is a farm that's expansive and passed down from person to person. And there's just tons of tenant farmers on it that work for them. Post-World War II, it's being completely divided up. And the family is trying so hard to hold on to what they have. They're already kind of a mess to begin with. But you see the patriarchs starting to lose control. And that that manifests in a whole bunch of, of different ways. And in an effort to maintain control, over their fate, over their land. It leads them to do some really, really awful things, including taking the young girl Ayako and putting her in a cellar where she's essentially imprisoned and raised. And, you know, I mean, as, as messed up as that is, and then, of course, there's there's the stuff where Ayako becomes, you know, very, very sexualized, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. All of that, though, kind of goes back to the motivation is we are trying to hold on to our land. You know, the reason they put Ayako in the box is because they don't want her being questioned by the cops because she might have witnessed a murder, which was created in, in the commission of a political crime. So it's not perversion for the sake of perversion. I don't know, man. I, I do wonder. I, I, I think this is a, a litigation of fucked up shit happening in the backwaters. I'm from Alabama, and people make lots of jokes about this kind of shit. And again, never experienced it, never saw it, but there's kind of like the the redneck stereotype of America, right? Deliverance, blah, blah, blah. And incest is part of those jokes. And the Tengas, while they are rich-ass plantation farmers, literally the accent or the slang that which the father and the eldest son speak is made out to be not proper Japanese. Tezuka went out of his way to show this redneck slang that they were speaking in, and that's what the English translator tried to do as well. Spoiler alert, the patriarch has his eldest son, and his eldest son wants the land, and the eldest son is married to a woman, and the patriarch makes a deal with the eldest son of, I will definitely make sure you get all the land if I can sleep with your wife. And that's how Ayako is produced. But it later comes out that, I believe I, I'm going to get her name wrong, she was also a product of the uh, patriarch fucking around with the help. And even in Game of Thrones, when they go over the wall, there's that character who's like the bumpkin who owns all the land, who all of his kids, he fucks, right? So it's just like... I think there's there's a commentary being made. Maybe it's like on international redneck culture. And I'm not, I well, don't take offense to that. I wonder mm -hmm. if this was something that happened in in this part of Japan. You know, I don't the, know. The, the closest analogy I can think is William Faulkner. And he has this whole series in this fictional county called Yakna Patafwa. And say that 10 times through fast. And it's, it, it all takes place post-Civil War. And these families who have been completely upended by the Civil War, by Reconstruction, and they're trying to reconcile with their incredibly racist past. There is, of course, a lot of incest. It's it's an old plantation family that has fallen apart. And in various ways, they're trying to hold it together. I don't know if Tezuka was influenced 
heavily by William Faulkner, but I couldn't quite get the parallels out of my mind. I, I kind of feel like he was taking a lot of what Faulkner did and, and sort of transplanting it to post-World War II Japan. Now, as far as any explicit commentary he was making, I'm not sure. I don't know enough about post-World War II Japan to make any sound educated guesses. But I do often find that when graphic novels or novels try to make explicit statements about a people or a circumstance, the drama is usually subsumed in an effort to of the creator, the writer trying to you know, make a make a political statement or a social statement. And I didn't get that with Ayako. I mean, as much as Ayako is a political book, it's it's fundamentally to me a, a really rich human drama. Leading up to where the story takes place, you know, Japan went from this massive powerhouse, right? They'd beat the Russians, I believe in Shanghai, but there were also these fucked up incidents, the rape of Nanking. During World yep. War II, Japan was known yep. for these war crimes and, and atrocities and the Bataan Death March. And, and so in some ways I had thought like, well, maybe that's that's the patriarch. That's this power. Nothing could ever defeat it. And and now you're in this wave of defeat where, you know, even the patriarch then going into uh, has a stroke and is gone for you know seven years, I believe. And so it's like this this old Japan has been kind of laid rest and, and what's being birthed in that time. And so, you know, does Hiro represent that? Does Ayako represent those kind of the futures of Japan, knowing that this kind of old school feudal plantation type era of Japan with with power, the power to sleep with whoever you want, whether they're family or not, is gone and, and what kind of arises, you know, within that shadow. Yeah, and, and the chickens come home to roost, right? Like it's your sins will catch up with you. I didn't learn this till later on in life. But, you know, what Japan did specifically to China in the war, and my wife is Chinese-American, and her dad was <laughs> furious when she bought a Japanese car, right? Like, like it runs deep. I do wonder if there's... Because Tezuka is not a slouch. He's not just some manga comic book artist. He, he has a lot of fun, and he has some very boyish charms to, like, Astro Boy and stuff like that. But he can get into some really deep shit. He's not called the godfather of manga for nothing. So I wouldn't put it past him to like be saying something deeper like this. What do you think about Ayako? Because I feel like we definitely need to talk about the the title character. And there was a big shift. Obviously, well, obviously, you know, she was she goes from being free to being put in a cellar. <laughs> um, and then in a box. <laughs> and then in a box. The sexualization of Ayako became, to me, like her identity in the second half of the, really once she became an adult. She became yeah. basically a sexy woman in a box. And that made me a little uncomfortable because all of the characters are very rich. They all, they all have their own motivations, their own drives, their own desires, including Yako herself. In the beginning, she's like a very precocious child. She has this, this fire to get out. And then eventually, she becomes this mute who happens to be like really, really sexy and people climb down there and they want to have sex with her. And I understand obviously you're not going to be psychologically well-balanced being in that situation, but I don't un believe that you would also completely lose all of your drives and your desires and your humanity in the way that Ayako did. She was infantilized. In no, I mean, I, I do agree to all of that. And it is, this is me passing a little bit of cultural judgment. This is where I was like trying to like read between the lines on how fucked up is Tezuka, right? Because Japanese culture, I got to be careful what I say, but I could see the stereotypical 
fetishization that some Japanese creators sometimes have. And I saw it and I didn't expect to see it from Tezuka. But what I will say, and it, it made me uncomfortable, but what I will say from her not being a character, even though she is the um, titular, titular character, what I will say is, yes, her character is completely drained from her because she was put in a box. She has no human contact. She is completely devoid of any real relationships. She's basically a child when she comes out of the box. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, in, in a you know Western culture, it's like this white means purity. It's like, how does it get more pure than than being in a box your entire life? And of course, what's interesting is she's like, she's not pure in a lot of ways, but it's like, it is like the peak purity by like, she's been sheltered in a cellar for your entire life. But they, and I, there's even like this uh, two page creepy scene, which look, I was already uncomfortable holding this book next to my wife while I was reading it in bed. And I just had to kind of explain it to her because the cover is, eh. uh, <laughs> I felt weird picking it up from the library. But there's this two page scene where they show her growing up and they the, literally it's like she has like the most perfect flesh and all this stuff. That's like where I got really uncomfortable. But it is like she's kind of. Literally never been outside, never been exposed to pollutants, never been exposed to anything. But yeah, there is. Is that is that a shield, yeah. though? So the, the most recent Metal Gear Solid video game, it's a Japanese creator, a famous Japanese auteur in the video game world. Mm. And the, one of the female characters is a sniper who has no clothes on. Her name's Quiet. She doesn't talk. And the creator said, don't worry, guys. There is a reason, there is a narrative reason why this girl has no clothes on. And eventually the reason is that she has some sort of disease where I guess she can't breathe if she has clothes on. So it was like... Oh, it's like every video game maker's fantasy. Yeah. 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 So I'm thinking like Ayako almost and being in the same category. Yes, I would agree. This character never grew up. She never had a... She never had an had an adolescence. She never really had an adulthood. She's completely claustrophobic, uh, sorry, agoraphobic because of her circumstances. But I also felt that it was almost sort of like a mask for sexualizing her in such an overt way. There's a two panel sequence later on where she tries to have sex with her uncle who's quote unquote rescued her. And it's supposed to be a horrifying moment, but you know, Tezuka doesn't want you to forget that this girl is sexy. And there's a way to kind of handle that. And I feel like ultimately the way he decided to handle it was to continue to make her as sexy as possible and i think that was a wrong decision because it took away all of her agency all of the interest in her character that she had before all of the fire and just made her sort of like a sex toy in a box there's to, to bring this up from this i i assume you guys are familiar with the bechtold test and it's it's applied to cinema but i think it should be applied to all storytelling the, the test is take all of the major female characters and do they have any agency of their own or does their plot or character development revolve around relationships to the male characters? And this book, with at least with the character Ayako, fails that test miserably. She has no independent yeah. identity. So while we've been talking, I've been looking at Tezuka's bibliography because this was written between 72 and 73. And he died in 83. And his... Um, Last two books following Ayako were like these decade-long epics, Buddha and Blackjack. I've not read Blackjack, but it's just interesting to see where this takes place in his life. One thing he does really well is the family dynamics, especially in the beginning, because there's like a lot of characters that he introduces to you 
in really, really quick succession. Honestly, I was hooked, especially once the, the patriarch comes out, once a father comes out. He's this little toad-like man. Physically, he doesn't look that threatening, and yet he has such nasty power over everybody. And Tezuka just illustrates that fantastically. I mean, even his eldest son, right? I mean, his eldest son's like a big guy, Ishiro. Yeah. Um, He's physically imposing, and yet even he's deferential to to this little toad-like man who is his father, and who is also both, yeah, he's both cunning, but he's also a complete lech, a complete buffoon. He, he kind of screams, he shouts, he's almost cartoonish. That's just so, so well portrayed. His power over the family, the way everyone's deferential to him in, in completely different ways. It's it's amazing. And is his power, do you think, I mean, is it just, is it financial? I mean, is it cultural? I mean, why... Does he have the power of like the entire region, really? Right. I mean, even the ability to vote, like, yep, we're just gonna stick Ayako in the cellar, and and that's kind of yeah. the decision we're gonna make here. It's like, where does that power? Is it is it cultural? Is that or historical? Yeah. Or just kind of how? Just kind of knowing what I know about, you know, Chinese culture and then Asian you know, culture, patriarchal. Yeah, yeah, Asian culture. Yeah. yeah, it's a patriarchy, and you always listen to the father. You never question the father, and that seems to extend to his tenant farmers as well, right? He's the daddy of the land. The closest analogy I can make is Downton Abbey. <laughs> Except that Downton yeah. Abbey, they're, they're at least kind of refined and they don't keep women in boxes. I guess they do keep women in the cellar, though. Well, but I mean, it, it is that like they run the town like and that's kind of touched on and not touched on. Everyone's related. Everyone wants a piece. But the small town is effectively run by this guy. And they even show like the local police commenting on the fucked up feudal nature of this massive landowner it's like the reconciling of old japan versus new japan well that's something that i really liked also the differences in the country versus the city and we got that also when we read arab of the future when that book people kept saying hey towns are hard living way out in the boonies is hard and you get that sensibility here as well no matter how much money how much power they might have within their own communities that's out in the boonies that's a completely different culture to what you get in like tokyo that's what I think is so masterful about this. How many characters he shows, how many different storylines he juggles from the political storylines to the detective storylines when they're investigating these murders. I mean, it becomes a police procedural. You also have the sequence of this assassination being carried out, all of the different step-by-step procedures where you assassinate this guy and leave his body on the train tracks. He, he's doing like so much in this book, especially in that first half, that it's kind of eye-popping to me. Yeah, the train track thing. It's hard for me not to think of that in the political sense. We think of the Tenge's owning this region. And when you think of what Hiro is doing with the murder, and is this out of love for country? But it's also, is it fucking your country? And Ayako has these like terrible challenges of what's love and what's sex. It was hard for me to read that without thinking of it as largely political and largely asking, what are you doing out of love and what are the implications? Oh, that's super interesting. I never even thought of it like that. But as you mentioned with Ayako, she mistakes sex for, for love. And even, yeah, the main character, Hiro, you know, is he a patriot or is he a traitor? It's not always clear, like what he's fighting for, who he's fighting for. Obviously, towards the end, he's kind of more of a conventional gangster. But in the beginning, his alliances are much less clear. And even Hero himself, as well as a hero, when we first meet him, he's been a prisoner of war. He's a conventionally attractive dude. He's coming he's back. He's got the eye patch. He's got <laughs> the eye puts, patch and everything. That he put secrets in. So fucking and money. Cool. And then later on, you kind of have this reversal of your perception of, of who he is because he's, he's the one who's essentially responsible for Iako being put in the box. Well, and what's really interesting, and I think this is, Ryan, where you and I will probably split hairs, 
But I loved the epic nature of this. Uh, I kind of wish this had gone multi-generational, but again, it was a one-year work versus some of his other works, which are like decades long. But that's where it felt epic. Like, you literally see yeah. these kids growing up into adulthood. She's actually very good at that also. Like, like Naoko especially. Like, he shows her being like a 17-year-old girl in love to being a, a middle-aged woman living alone. And at, at all points, she's recognizable. You always kind of recognize her facial expressions, even though she's gained like a considerable amount of weight by the end. The same kind of strength of character she had as a young girl that kind of like translates even as a as a middle aged woman. Just as like a new kind of newer to the medium it was very impressive how easy it was to follow people throughout all these generations. I mean, Shiro, too, I think it's it's not just visually, but also just kind of representing like who those characters were from the start. You know, this like very excited, you know, justice driven, but also flawed person kind of follows and, and I thought the characters were really well uh, developed and both visually and seeing them kind of grow through those eras. And even as the story expands, at the end it becomes the, this Yakuza story and yet it all makes sense. It's not like he's just throwing different genres at yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. It all ties back to essentially it all ties back to what happened on, on the farm. Even though a few sprawling it's actually kind of like really compact storytelling. And it's 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 almost like Here's where they are now. Oh, he's a gangster. How would a gangster reconcile all of this in his fucked up existence with all of his excess and all of his riches? He's laying the threads for the original crime because the cr original crime is not Ayako. She is a byproduct of the original crime. Yeah. And you have, you know, the old mentor cop who's trying to run down this case and who dies before he can realize it. And that old cop comes to the new cop's house and his son is there. And they flesh out the character of the son who interacts with Ayaka, right? So let's, I want to jump to the end. How did you guys feel about the ending? You mean when everyone gets buried? <laughs> <laughs> or everyone gets Ayako'd, basically. There's a certain poetic justice to it. But, it, you know, so so thematically, it, I could kind of see why he made that decision. But in burying everyone in the mountain, it kept the characters from having to resolve everything at the character level, right? Suddenly this force from God changes everything and everyone ends up dead. And in a way, it felt a little bit like a cop-out, even though thematically it, it made sense. That was my issue with it. Yeah, I, I kind of felt that, but I also, I remember laughing out loud, realizing how close they were to air, to like, for yeah. this whole issue to like not happen. And I was like, Okay, that's some like kind of dark humor I wasn't expecting. So, yeah, I kind of was like, this is an interesting way to resolve things. I, I, I didn't love it, but I was laughing. And then I was kind of thinking like, okay, maybe a Yako like is the future of Japan. And that's just kind of where we left things. But yeah, I'm not sure exactly what that final message was meant to be. Well, the other, I'm a sucker for wanting a happy ending and I wanted a happy ending for her. And I mean, look, she's fucking rich and all the assholes from her life are dead. So cool. But there's what I mean, the one guy like the whatever, the assistant DA, like he didn't do anything wrong and he had to die. I was pretty upset about it. <laughs> I, yeah. I, he says, hi, dad. Oh, we were that close to the surface. Death. <laughs> <laughs> I will also say there is sort of a poetry to seeing because the family had always, even in the beginning, at each other's throats. It always been kind of like trying to backstab each other, just not explicitly. They would usually try to maneuver behind each other's backs or frame each other. And mm -hmm. at the end, all of their hatred of each other, all of their antagonism, it just kind of comes out. And there is something kind of cathartic 
seeing all of this pent-up rage emerge and they're all basically shouting at each other and, and as, as they die so again it's mixed there are things that i definitely liked about it but there's also that element of and suddenly they all got struck by lightning it's also interesting that that ma wound up as kind of like the continuation of this tenge name that they were trying to protect which was also interesting like is she the birth of J- japan or the birth of culture that just like is that's the continuation of the pre-war and the post-war it, i was just uh, i was trying to figure out like where what what was ma's role in this entire thing other than like letting a bunch of fucked up shit happen in her family it was kind of like uh she's a fucking accomplice though like yeah. again her, her role in the culture like she really was powerless to be clear hmm. but again <laughs> I, again, don't know Japanese law, but like in American law, like you're an accomplice. You you could have ratted them out to the to the cops. But again, what did she know how to do and not know how to do? Right? She she didn't have any power in this household, even though she she was loved and she was respected. And you know whether you can say okay that that makes her an enabler or not, as you would today. I don't know. I do feel though, um, giving her the last word. It felt a little fake to me. Like she says, as for the Tenga household, as long as I be alive and well, it shan't ever fold. Well, I don't know. I'm I was kind of wondering how to how to take that because she's an old woman. She has been powerless through all of these things, so it doesn't seem like she would have the wherewithal to really maintain the household. But on the other hand, maybe that's the point, right? She says, as long as I'm alive and well, it shan't ever fold. But she's about ready to die. So it could be right. the sort of bitter irony that that Tezuka is trying to to communicate there. Like, yeah. say that, but you're on your last leg. So this really yeah. is, yeah, doomsday exactly. regardless. So it could be a very cynical, it could be like not a hopeful line at all, but a very cynical one. I kind of like that ambiguity now that I think about it. Hmm. How does this hold up, Ryan, for you? I've only read, gosh, maybe three or four books by Tezuka. How does this hold up for you against any of his other stuff that you might have read? I haven't read any of his books. This is my first, man. What? I know. Wow. So I'm the asshole for not making us read Tezuka sooner. You are. Well, you know, someone had to do it. So let me ask you, my friend, how does this hold up against the the rest of Tezuka's work? I mean, I've read Astro Boy here and there. I've read Buddha, which is a nine-volume epic written over a decade late in life because Tezuka, while he said he was an atheist, more or less became a devout Buddhist late in life. That's going to be heavy, right? But it's heavy and fun because it's by the guy who did Astro Boy because I read Astro Boy Buddha and now this. And I've, I've read a couple of like mangas about Tezuka growing up, which, you know, got a lot of acclaim. This is, it's really Downton Abbey meets Game of Thrones for me. It really was. Like it's, uh, I did not expect this from him. The range I'll give you an analogy. To me, a movie is like a five out of five if it affects me. If it literally disturbs me, makes me laugh, makes me cry. Uh, Devil's Advocate was a film that affected me. I was disturbed. I could not sleep after I watched it. So I gave the movie a five out of five. And I don't know if I'd give this book that, but there were moments and not even the most obvious moments that unsettled me. And I can't say the same about the other Tezuka stuff I've read. It has really left me wondering, is Tezuka fucked up and just telling fucked up stories because he likes to? Or again, to some of the stuff John's been saying, is there a broader commentary here? 
Well, okay, I just want to address it because we brought this up in the beginning. Actually, I was just talking about Lolita, which is about, which is a really insidious book. Have you guys read Lolita? No, but by, I know. Uh, by Nabokov? Yeah. Okay, so what's what's insidious about it is that he has, Nabokov has a very kind of lively, fun narrator, and he tricks you into liking the narrator. And the reason that's so insidious is that the narrator, basically throughout the book, he's kidnapping and raping a young girl. And you can ask that question of like, well, you know, what does it say about Nabokov? But I, I always feel like that's not the right question to ask because you're assuming that he's writing erotica, which he's not. He's trying to create a certain character, challenge you as a reader. Uh, challenge your sense of morality, challenge what you would be willing to go along with, challenge your your complicitness in this whole situation. And I think Tezuka's showing this incredible decay of this family and the way it manifests in the abuse of this young girl. And all of it is done in the name of maintaining their very tenuous hold on their own wealth and their own land. So I, yeah, I'm a little uncomfortable saying, well, you know, did Suzuka want to do something fucked up? Did he want to, you know, was he trying? I don't think he was trying to like explicitly do something fucked up. I just think that that was the product of, you know, what this family was willing to do in the name of, in the name of greed and desperation. Yeah. I mean, I, I tend to agree that it's not shock for shock's value. And these are universal actions that people would be, shocked at right like incest and killing family members it's like universally shocking but i don't think it's done for the effect of it to be shocking but i don't know i mean i, I kind of hit with rum and where like i don't think this is a, a five out of five where i would like go recommend it to everybody to go read nor do i i'm not even sure who i'd recommend read it but i did spend a lot of time thinking about it can i just ask both of you what would be your hesitation when it comes to recommending it what didn't work for you I don't think I got a good pinpoint on who would like it and why it would be liked. Maybe a part of it is because like no one comes to me and is like, hey, man, like I really like books with incest in it. Like, do you have any great recommendations for me? It's not for everybody. And it's like I'd be pretty cautious with where that recommendation actually fits in, in a conversation. If I had a friend who's like, yo, man, I just read Watchmen. I need 10 other amazing graphic novels. What else should I read? This wouldn't be one. Now, if someone said, hey, man, I like some really good shit, Marvel Man, Alan Moore, Warren Ellis, and I'm starting to get into manga, what are the mangas to read? This, I mean, I, I can count on hands and toes, so less than 20 mangas that I've read. This is up there. I think this is, here's what I'd say, Ryan, of all the mangas that we read on this podcast, this is the best. I will, I will give that. Like, Junji Ito, is it amazing? Is it disturbing? Yeah, but yes. I, horror is not my horror is not my jam, right? That's true. And the meta narrative that inspired Inception, eh, it's fine. I liked Inception better. And again, this is by one of the great. So, uh, kind of to John's point, like I wouldn't just throw someone into this necessarily uh john's a special guy we can throw this sort of stuff at <laughs> i'm glad you did so personally i've always liked stories where people where you see what happens when people are pushed to extremes well, hang on hang on hang on hang on i don't let's be very clear i don't think that's the case here and i, I hate to un unwrap a big argument at the end of the podcast but like no let's uncork it no but th these people weren't pushed to this extreme these people oh. did the shit and extreme shit happened 
I believe they were pushed to the to the extremes, right? I mean, the political situation is what got them there. They no, are losing. No, I'm everything. sorry. Gr- grandpa was, grandpa was gonna fuck his daughter in law anyway. Sorry, that's that was gonna happen with this dude because he was fucking the help. He couldn't keep it in his pants. He slept with his son's wife, and that's fucked up. To right. be clear. But why that shit happens son, in Game of Thrones. So, why did the like, son? Why does the son allow that? The son allows that because he wants the farm. This is his only way of getting the farm. But so, but that I, would I think that would have happened even if it wasn't post World War yeah. II Japan. I, but I think it, that's that's Jiro. But that's 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 but that's pushing that's that's being pushed to an extreme, isn't it? If you don't do this for me, you will not get your inheritance. That is being pushed to an extreme, and that's what I mean because this is the only way that they can get the security that they want. This is the depths that they are willing to stoop to. So that's my argument there. I mean, you're right. Not every motivation is somebody, you know, oh my God, I'm under the gun. But by and large, the fundamental drama of this book, the reason things happen, it's because it's because this need for survival. No, that's fair. The girl being locked in the box was an extreme response. So I will give you that. But the girl's lineage is not. All right. Well, so, Ruman, what are we reading next week? Well, I'll tell you what. If you thought we were going to leave post-World War II Japan, you are sorely mistaken. If you God thought damn you were it, Ryan. Manga, you are sorely <laughs> mistaken. We are, next week, we're going to read three collected stories by Yoshihiro Tatsumi. We are going to be, re- be reading The Pushman. We are going to be reading Abandoned, The Old in Tokyo. And finally, we'll be reading... Goodbye. Each of them is a collection of short stories detailing dark little tales of what people need to do to survive in post-World War II Japan. Does that sound familiar at all? Let's just say one of the covers is also something you don't want to pick up from the library or have your wife look at while you are reading in bed. (laughs) I'm just just here to make Ruman and Jonathan this week uncomfortable. Mission accomplished. (laughs) 